a great uh, encouragement, a great tune-up for our marriages. Well, I know that as you all walked in this morning, you were thinking about the early 1900s. So let me take us back there for just a minute, if I may. In 1903, after more than four years of research and development, uh, two brothers, Orville and Wilbur, Wilbur Wright, finally got their flying machine off the ground. And this first flight that took place in Kitty Hawk in the States was about 35 meters long. We've come a little bit since then, haven't we? It was December 3rd, that first flight, so the boys excitedly, you know, probably packed up their tools and stuff and ran to the telegraph office because they couldn't text. They ran to the office and sent a telegraph home to their family, to their sister Catherine, and said, we've actually flown 120 feet and we'll be home for Christmas. Now, Catherine, no doubt, was excited and, and pumped for her brothers, so she ran to the local newspaper office, thinking everybody needs to know this, and showed the editor the message that she'd got from her brothers. He glanced at the telegram and said, How nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. He completely missed the news, didn't he? Completely missed the big news of the telegraph. For the first time in history, somebody had flown, and he read... Oh, great, they'll be home for Christmas. The entire course of human history had changed. Think of, of, of all that's happened in the air since 1903, whether that's travel, whether it's war, whether it's shipping and delivering, all the systems, everything had changed. And the, the editor of the local paper was so focused on what he was trying to do that he completely missed it. Of course, he's not the only one in history that has missed the big news and been distracted by what's right in front of him. I suspect that we can all think of examples of this in someone else's life. We can probably call to mind some viral videos we've seen on Facebook or YouTube where somebody's you know, walking and texting on their phone and found themselves face down in the koi pond at the mall or, or whatever, right? Just too focused on one thing and, and missed, the, missed something big. But there's examples of this that are probably less, a little bit less humorous, too. Uh, if we're parents, how many of us have looked at our kids and said, where did the time go? I've missed so many little moments because I'm, I'm so focused on this little thing. Or even as we relate to our own parents or our own grandparents, we might look back at our lives and realize, man, I, I got so caught up in building this little thing over here that I missed moments with my parents and with my grandparents that, that I can never have back. This morning, we're going to look at a passage in, in Luke's biography of Jesus where something really important was happening, but a lot of people missed out on the most important piece of news. So let me read the text for us. It's going to come from Luke chapter 19. And it's, it's Palm Sunday, so you're expecting that the pastor's going to read the triumphal entry passage, probably if you've been around Easter services more than once or twice. You can guess where in the gospel I'm going to head. Uh, there's, there's some beauty to familiarity, though, of course, but there's also some danger in familiarity, isn't there? When we become familiar with something, often that thing can lose some of the awe or the excitement or even the joy around it. Think about the first time you walked into the house you're living in. 
everything was great, it looked so big, the grass is of course green, and, and the realtor did a great job to get you set up, and, and all the things, and now it's like, man, there's stuff everywhere in this house, and the kids are here, and all, like, right? It just kind of loses a bit of luster. Think about a, a relationship you have that, that, you know, the novelty kind of maybe wears off. Think about the path even that you go for a walk or a hike. When it gets familiar, sometimes you miss the little things. I, I've talked before about walking to the mailbox with the one-year-old, right? And it's, in Calgary, we had a townhouse, and it was community box like we have here in Canmore, and it was, we were number three, and the box is by number six. So I had to make it four doors down to get to the mailbox, and it could take 10 minutes because the kid was like, Daddy, look, this blade of grass. Look at this pine cone. Daddy, watch that leaf go down the street. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm trying to be focused on my thing, and I'm, I'm missing, right? The familiarity is, I don't care about these things. I just want to do my task. It can happen to a biblical text, too. Pastor reads Luke 19 every Palm Sunday. Let's just get on with it, right? But let me read here, and as I read, let me ask that Jesus would speak through this text to us in a fresh way this morning. Luke 19, I'm going to start at verse 28. Now, after Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples. And he said, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter you'll find a colt tied there, one which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. And so those who were sent left. And they found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. And then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. And now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. And they cried out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. What a scene, what an event this would have been. This is again, what we call the triumphal entry. It's Jesus heading into Jerusalem for the very last time. There's a, there's a ton going on here. It's a complex event. And it's so important in the life of Jesus that all four gospel writers record it for us. There's lots going on, and so as we read this text some 2,000 years after they happen in a context that's very different than Israel at the time, there's, there's lots of things that might have been said or done that, that don't make much sense in 2022 in, in Canmore, but would be immediately significant for a first century Jew. We see that even though lots of people welcome Jesus with open arms, not everyone is totally happy about what's going on, are they? Now, uh, his humble entrance here would have maybe softened concerns of, of some that, that Jesus was going to come and, and overthrow the Roman Empire and, and there might be war on the horizon. But when we look at his entry, the, the, the contrast between the way Jesus entered Jerusalem and the way that a conquering general would have entered would have been significant and culturally obvious. 
And there's a lot going on here. The way Jesus enters the city is a major statement about God's plan and the nature of his kingship. Now, there is a lot of excitement on this day, to be sure. The, the, the passage is just dripping with excitement, isn't it? But at the same time, there's a lot of misinformation, or misunderstanding, rather. People started to, to heap expectations on Jesus, uh, and they were misinformed. Some of the most upset people were the religious people, the ones who should have been most likely to recognize all that was going on here. But they missed it. They were so focused on themselves and the religious fences that they had built and the, the construct of, of life and order and hierarchy that they had set up for themselves that they were so focused on the event they missed what was happening. They're the editor that said, great, the boys will be home for Christmas when really they'd just flown for the first time. There's so much in this text talking about what kind of king Jesus was going to be and what the kingdom was going to look like. But maybe even more importantly than that, it's proving, there's lots in this text that proves that, that Jesus is who he said he was because he's fulfilling all kinds of Old Testament prophecies and promises. These verses are, are dripping with Old Testament reference. There's at least six to eight different prophecies being fulfilled here. So let's dig in a little bit. As Jesus approaches the city, he begins to direct the events. He gives his disciples a specific instruction, and they go ahead, and they find things exactly as Jesus said they would. Now, some who are maybe a little, in our day, who are a little more excited about kind of putting miracles to the side might say, well, Jesus probably snuck ahead, and he arranged this would be here, and he talked to the owner to put the colt there, but forget that. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly what he was heading into. He knew exactly where this cult would be. He knew exactly that someone would come and question the disciples for what they're doing. And he knew that it was important that he went and he found a cult because it's fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9. And again, it was also a culturally relevant and acceptable thing for him to do. Dignitaries and even rabbis of the day would kind of commandeer cults at the time. And it would be fine which is why the, the guys don't really put up a fight. When the disciples come, they untie the colt. The servants say, hey, what are you doing taking our colt? That's, that's not a thing. I say, no, but the Lord needs it. Ah, okay. The Lord can use it. Happy to help. If you come over to my house and start unlocking my bike in the morning, and I say, hey, what are you doing? And you say, ah, the Lord needs it. I say, no, 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 no. That's not a thing anymore. Sean Krauser can get his own bike. You know, the, the, the prime minister can get his own bike. This one's mine. It's not coming back. It's not, it's not going to help, right? That's not a thing anymore. But here, it was a thing. So it was, it was acceptable. It was normal. It was, it was, it was understood that, that this was a rabbi or somebody important borrowing this cult. So the disciples, they go ahead and we read that they find everything exactly as Jesus told them that it would, that they would. And this helps for us as we read even to kind of start to build the mood and the sense that, that something significant is happening here. You don't just say, head down here and find this and everything's right where it should be, right? It reminds us that, that the things that are about to take place in Jerusalem are no surprise to Jesus. He's fully aware of what he's getting himself into and what he's walking into. 
He knows exactly what's going to happen in the course of this Easter week, and he sets his eyes on Jerusalem, and he heads there anyways. For us who know the week, and we can look back, not just at what's happening in this text of the triumphal entry and the disciples who are in that moment, but we can look back and we can see Good Friday and Saturday and Easter Sunday. We can look back and we can gain confidence from this that Jesus knew what he was doing. He was in control of all these events. It's not a coincidence that this was the Passover festival that Jesus walked into town. He's in control. We see the, the role of the animal kind of become clear as Jesus gets closer and closer to town as well. As he nears, the disciples put their cloaks on the animal and then they put Jesus on it as well. And, and this is the first time, I think the only time that we actually see Jesus not walking, except for when he's on a boat. And even on the water, sometimes he walks, right? There's something important happening here because Jesus just walked like everyone else all the time. And then the crowds, they start to sense that something's going on here too. And so they start to put their cloaks on the ground in front of him. This is, this is the red carpet treatment. This is the Grammys. This is the Oscars. This is all the kind of glitz and glam of an entrance into town. And again, several Old Testament passages would have come to mind to the Jews as they saw this going on. Zechariah 9, 9 again, but also the royal entrances of kings like, like Jehu and Solomon himself would have been pictured in this procession that would have been brought to mind. But even though all that's happening here is, is very kingly and, and very regal, the point that Jesus is trying to make as well is that I'm, I'm coming on a humble animal. I'm not riding in on a war horse. Not this time. But he comes on a, on a humble animal, pointing to himself to be a king who is going to be one who serves and one who is humble. It's significant that this king as well as the ones that the, the crowds call the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a very messianic title. The name of the Lord is, 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 is doing the work of God for God. This is, you don't just say that to, oh, well, these people are doing something in the name of this. This is significant. And he's walking in the city for Passover. Again, this is a week-long, an eight-day festival, one of the, the main festivals, if not the main festival in the Jewish tradition that celebrates Israel's exodus from Egypt. It represents a number of things, but a couple of them are the forgiveness of sins and also deliverance, being delivered from Egypt. And whether the crowds realize it or not at this moment, Jesus is coming to do both. He's coming to be the Passover lamb, the one who will bring forgiveness of sins, but also the one who will deliver his people, not just from Egypt, not just from Rome, but from Satan's sin and death itself. One of the things that, that Luke does as he recounts this story for us is he, he really keeps us honed in and focused on the person of Jesus and, and, and the actions around Jesus especially. And so he, he points us to, in verse 37, as they, they're passing the Mount of Olives, he says, the whole multitude of his disciples, of Jesus' disciples, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Again, the, the, the mention of the mountain isn't just so that we can look on a map and say, oh, he was at this mountain, and then he walked down this path, and we can guess where he walked into town. But this is, is another pointer to Jesus being the Messiah. This is another promise fulfilled. 
another prophecy come true. The crowd shouts, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In verse 38. They're crying out the hope of Psalm 118 where the the blessing falls on the king that's coming in the name of the Lord. This is a a psalm that was often, uh, that that would have pointed them and was often used when, when a king would lead his people to the temple to worship. These words are being put on Jesus. In Psalm 118, that the king is, is greeted by the priests at the temple with the recognition that the king comes to worship and serve God, just like everybody else. And so this psalm would have been sung year after year by the Jews as part of the celebration that came with the Passover meal, which again has massive significance. And so when the disciples and, and the crowds chime in and they start to echo these words of the psalm and then apply them to Jesus, they're declaring that Jesus is the one. He is the the sent king from heaven who comes with authority and authority that's been given by God. And so there's joy filling the streets and the crowds seem to keep growing and growing as the procession goes on and they proclaim as well the presence and the peace and glory in heaven, which if we had been tracking all the way through Luke's gospel should ring a little bell in our minds of of what was declared by the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter two. You know it because Linus says it in the Christmas story, right? Peace on earth and glory, greatest glory in the heavens. It was promised In Luke 2, it's being declared over Jesus in Luke 19. This king who comes points us back to all kinds of breadcrumbs scattered throughout Luke's gospel, Luke's biography, where where we've got these hints as to who Jesus is. And if we were to study all these these texts and all these breadcrumbs in in Luke, we'd notice that there's two kind of sets of clues that, that he keeps leaving for us to track through the story. One always points us back to the Old Testament and shows that Jesus is a fulfillment of expectation and prophecy and promise. And the other points to all the the events of Jesus' ministry, especially his miracles. And that's what they're singing about right now, isn't it? He's done all these things. Bless us, he he did these things. These these signs, these miracles. And both types, the, the, the breadcrumbs that point us to the Old Testament and the breadcrumbs that point us to his signs and wonders and miracles, ultimately point us to one thing, that Jesus is the promised one of God. Jesus is the one that that John the Baptist mentioned as coming to be the Lamb of God, to take the sins of the world. He's the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and he's the one that we will watch be slain in Jerusalem. And for those with eyes to see, it's all here. All the pieces are here. In the moment, the the crowds are just eating this up. For the time being, they're convinced. They start to jump in with the songs. They start to join in the procession. But if we're familiar with the story, we know what's coming, don't we? Many in this crowd today that that seem to think, okay, this is good. They're they're talking about miracles. I could use some miracles. They're talking about this king. I, I could use a king. Great, I'm in. A few days later, though, they're shouting what? Crucify him. I 
think they see what's going on here and they, they jump on the bandwagon. But when push really comes to shove, they're not all that invested in the kind of king Jesus is going to be or how he's going to become king. They have this, this vision for Jesus' life of overthrowing Rome and, and bringing freedom and the sense of independence from the Roman Empire. But they're just as easily swayed later. When things seem to be turning south, they just jump on the next bandwagon. Again, there's so much going on in these verses. There's so much fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There's, there's answers to thousands of years of prayers for God's anointed one to come, his promised one to come. And so many people miss the big news. <clears throat> the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, the ones who were most studied, the ones who, who should have known, should have recognized, they hear the songs of the crowd and they recognize what's being said. At least they got that going for them, right? They understand that these words are not just to be put on any person. But they just can't fit Jesus into their, their box and mold of Messiah. And so they come to him and say, Teacher, rebuke your servants. Do you know what they're saying, Jesus? Do you understand the significance of the words? Because we do. Look at us. Tell them to stop saying these things. The Pharisees, are, they're, they're, they're so stuck in their ways that they too can't see Jesus for who he is. They're, they're too busy trying to keep things just so. They like the life they built for themselves, maybe the hierarchy of, of culture at the time. They like their fancy robes. They like the honor that they get from people. And when Jesus comes, they're, they, they, they're stuck in the details. Say, wait a minute. No, no. If this is the thing, then we're going to lose what we want. I, I like this. Not interested in that. Now, I know it's really easy for us to look at this text and pick on the Pharisees and say, ah, those clowns. How, how, how could they miss it? It's all here. How could they miss it? But we all do this. I do this. We can all get so caught up in the life that we've built for ourselves or in the thing that we're doing that we miss what Jesus wants to do, what he's come to do for us. We can get so focused on the life that we've created for ourselves or have built for ourselves that we start to view the world through me-colored glasses instead of through Jesus-colored glasses. Now, if you are currently wearing glasses, let me invite you to pull those off and have a look at the front. You could probably find your way up to me, and if I hold my hand, you'd probably give me a high five. Right? You could probably get by. How's the clarity? How, how well do you see things? For those that aren't wearing glasses, have you ever walked? You can put your glasses back on if you still have them off. <laughs> don't want you to leave with them off. That's a bad thing. If you don't wear glasses, have you ever walked into to the pharmacy, like at maybe a Rexall or something, where they've got the, the rack of readers, and just thought, I... I wonder what this looks like. And you pick the strongest ones, obviously. Pick the strongest ones and put them on and just like, eyes open wide and same thing, right? It's like, I could maybe get, it just, it just doesn't work, right? If the lenses aren't right for your eyes, you just can't see everything right. You can get by. You could probably, again, make it through the room, make it out the room, but, but it wouldn't work properly. In the same way, 
when we view the world through our own lenses, looking at the, the, the world and everything around us through the lens of our goodness instead of the person and work of Jesus, we're getting a distorted view of the world. We can probably get through it, likely not too well, but we can, we can make it. We get a distorted view when we look at the world through our own works, through our own goodness. Maybe today we might find ourselves looking at Jesus and looking at the world through the lens of the crowd. They're starting to hear this, this processions happening. Uh, there's praises being sung about this guy. They're talking about miracles. And I think, how, how can I get in on that? How can I have enough of Jesus so that uh, he gives me what I want? I could, I, could, I could use a miracle. I could use a couple miracles. I could, you know, I, I've heard about the, the loaves and the fishes. I could use some loaves and fishes. I've, I've heard about some healing. I could use some healing. So how do I get just close enough to get what I want? That's kind of where the crowds were at this day. Maybe we jump on that bandwagon. Maybe we look at the world through the religious leader's lens as well and say, listen, I have been at church every Sunday for however many years and years and years. I have read my Bible a lot. I've prayed a lot. I've given, I've done these things. I've checked the boxes. So I'm good with God and he should do what I want. Forget this Jesus that asked me to do something else. I've built this life, and if Jesus wants in, he's got to fit into it. Maybe we look at it that way. But both of those lenses miss the mark, don't they? Like a lot miss the mark. So what does Jesus' lens for the world look like? What's one of the things? We get a picture of his heart in the next couple of verses. Let me read for us again. Luke 19, this is verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem... And as he saw the city ahead, he began to weep. It's how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. It's amazing that this moment that's, that's supposed to be, well, we call it the triumphal entry. There's there's, there's celebration, there's, there's stuff going on. He's, he's openly, really, fulfilling prophecy and declaring who he is. And he looks at the city. He looks at the hub of Judaism. He looks at the home of the temple where God is supposed to live with his people. And he just sees so much busyness that he weeps. I've come to bring peace, but you guys are so stuck on all the things you're doing that you've missed it, and now you're missing peace. It's hidden from your eyes. He's moved, again, by the emotions of Jesus and how he wept for the people that missed what he came to do. Jesus came to bring peace. He's declared it here again for us. Not freedom from the politics of that day or from the politics of our day, not religious order, but he came to bring peace with God. He came to bring peace to a, a crisis that's, that's way bigger than politics or finances or any other physical threat that we face. He came to bring peace in our relationship with the Creator. He came to bring a solution to the problem of sin, and he came to bring peace to the problem of spiritual and eternal death. 
And he's still bringing that peace today. Longing to bring that peace today. So let me ask you a question that's somewhat pointed and unashamedly hard. Are you too distracted by your own life to really see Jesus? Are you too distracted by your own life to really see Jesus? Again, are you just happy that the boys are home for Christmas and missing that they flew? Are, are you too distracted by, by work or politics or the next online argument or uh, the religious whatevers of, your, of your, your life? Too distracted by, by your own, uh, call it what it is, self-centeredness and self-indulgence to see what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is calling us to? How many times have we missed something that, that Jesus has for us or Jesus is calling us to or, or, or wanting to give another, you know, another gift, another grace that he wants to lavish on us and we've missed it because we're too wrapped up in ourselves, in our phones, in our scrolling the internet, in our chasing after that next raise, that next degree, that next mark, some other task, some other goal, some other high. I'm afraid that that's a, that's a can be a, pretty big number. It's a big number for me. I've missed things because I've just been distracted. Jesus wants to come and to bring peace. He doesn't want you to show up on Palm Sunday to get some more information about him and to take uh, this passage and say, well, the pastor said this references Zechariah and this references Psalm and this da 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 da. Let's just file that back in the encyclopedia and put it in the back of the brain. That's not what he wants at all. That's good stuff. But he wants to bring peace. He wants you to come to him, to let you take over, to let him take over your life and to transform you to look more like him, to give you life, abundant life. Well, how do we do this? Let me give you a couple suggestions. Take them or leave them. I don't want to leave us hanging in. Man, I'm too distracted. So how do we do this? First, let me encourage you, and maybe even challenge you this week, to set aside some intentional time to think about what your relationship with Jesus looks like. And that can be maybe an, an, an odd question. But think about any relationship needs time invested in it, need time together. So if you think about your relationship with Jesus and take whatever that looks like and apply it to any other relationship in your life, think about how well that would go. So maybe if I, I do, I take this and I take my relationship with Jesus and I apply it to my relationship with my spouse. If I talk to my wife for, I was going to say five minutes, but you know, two minutes before bed saying thanks, had a great day. See you for an hour on Sunday. How well do you think that marriage will go? I'm not sure even Neil and, Neil and Sharon could fix that one. Right? There's, there's going to be some deep-rooted problems if that's the only communication, the only investment in that relationship that I have. Think about what your relationship to Jesus looks like. Is, is church just something you've always done? And, and I, I, I look around the room and I, I know lots of your stories and, and you know some of my story. I, I suspect that none of us would say, I go to church on Sunday because I go to church on Sunday. However, it can be really easy for us to just sort of slip into that routine unintentionally. 
Kenta. So when we gather, do we think about it as, as just doing the Sunday morning thing so we can get on with lunch and get on with the afternoon, Sunday afternoon thing before we go to work on Monday or whatever it looks like? Or is, do, we, do we look at coming together as an opportunity to celebrate the gospel, to remind one another of the gospel, to uh, expectantly come to hear from the Holy Spirit, to be challenged and encouraged and drawn into faith and to have our faith bolstered and built by being with one another and to remember the gospel by communion and all these things. And, and, and it's, it's the highlight of the week. What's, what's Sundays like? What's the gathering like? Another thing, uh, consider whether you've traded uh, righteousness, like Jesus' righteousness, his right living, for self-righteousness. What I mean is, are you building your life and your hopes and your, your little world on the good that you've done or on the good work that Jesus has done? And again, I, I, don't, I would suspect none of us are firmly on one side of that or the other's. But there's probably areas in our lives where it's like, yes, here, if I really am honest with myself, I'm living this part of my life because I think it's, it's good for me. And other parts are because, well, Jesus did this, so I'm, I'm in there, right? Third thing, think about how much time you spend consuming media. And media, the more you think about the word media, it's, it's, it's a massive word. So whether it's music, TV, uh, movies, magazines, newspaper, all the things, right? So much fits in there. Think about how much time you spend consuming media and consider trading some of that time to invest in that relationship with Jesus in things we call the spiritual disciplines. Praying, reading your Bible, just speaking to myself, shutting up and being quiet trying to recognize and enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's one I'm working on. It's, 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 I don't want to say it's new to me, but it's not one that I invested a lot of time in my life growing up in, in a Baptist church and whatever we, we knew the Holy Spirit was a thing, but what does that look like? I don't know. And so mornings, I'm up before anyone else. I head down to the basement. I make my little coffee. I try to sit on the couch and at least spend a couple minutes trying to grow these minutes just with the grace of Jesus in a cup of coffee and just think, okay, what does it look like to enjoy and sit in the presence of God? And, and what, what does Jesus want to say to me today? Trade some of that media time for intentionally talking with others about what God is teaching you. The reason uh, we're week 15, I'm maybe, I don't know, 12 of the 15 weeks I've highlighted that Bible reading plan the reason I've been doing that is so that a number of us are reading the same chunks of the Bible every week. And so it, it's to help facilitate us saying, hey, we read the end of Luke this week. What did God say? It doesn't have to be like, like a, a formal set Bible study. This can be a conversation while you're walking down the street, while you're standing in front of the house, whatever. But it takes some intentionality to it. Another one I, I was reminded of, and maybe you can identify, maybe not. But again, parent your phone. For many of us, phones swallow up so much. And if we're not intentional, they can just swallow up hours. Maybe it's just me. But parent your phone. Let it sleep in. 
It'll be okay. Put her to bed early. It'll be fine. I'm saying I think I think over the course of however many years I've had three different iPhones and for whatever reason I probably have the box for each of them still, right? If you're like me and can identify with that, put your phone in the box at night. Charge it during the day, it'll be fine. Put it in the box at night because then when you wake up in the morning, my tendency, again, maybe, maybe I'm alone in this, but I suspect not, is to grab the phone, even if I think I'm gonna open the Bible app on my phone, grab the phone and there's stuff pops up from overnight. Ooh, there was a race, a Formula One race that happened early. Ooh, somebody tweeted me. Ooh, there's a whatever, gonzo. But if I've got that phone in a box instead of just on the desk when I go downstairs, that extra few seconds of trying to fiddle around with the silly box to get it open, is that just enough of a moment to say, whoa, 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 whoa. what are we doing here? Leave it, leave the phone, let it sleep in. It's gonna be okay. Just go down and make a cup of coffee. Right? Parent your phone. What I don't want, I don't want for me, and I don't want for any of you, is to be like that editor that missed the first flight because he was too busy with his paper. I don't want us to get so caught up and distracted by what can become the busyness of an Easter season or of just life in general, and we miss the gospel and we miss Jesus. In just a minute, uh, we're going to celebrate communion. But first, let me pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see you and what you're up to in and around our lives. Even now, I ask that you would bring to mind things in our, in our life that are, you know, even good things that are distractions that are keeping us from investing in our relationship with you. Help us, to show us er, help us and show us areas in our lives where we've put on us glasses instead of your glasses. God, we want to see the world through your eyes and see what you're up to through your eyes. Show us the things you're doing and where we can partner with what you're doing to make your name great. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.